Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Mia Bloom is the International Security Fellow at, at New America, a professor at Georgia State University and a member of the Evidence-Based Cybersecurity Research Group. Sofia Maskalenko is a psychologist who studies mass identity, intergroup conflict, and conspiracy theories. These two experts of extremist radicalization have joined their specialties to co-author Pastels and Pedophiles, Inside the Mind of QAnon, a new book that looks into why this collection of wild conspiracy theories has attracted millions of followers. It's published by Redwood Press and brings Professor Bloom and Dr. Moskalenko to our show now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Well, since there are two of you, I'm going to throw out a question and assume that the one, the person who feels best qualified will answer. The other one, of course, could do a follow-up. And, and in some cases, of course, I will address you specifically. Uh, QAnon first appeared on October 28, 2017, less than four years ago. And now its membership is estimated to be as much as 35 million. How is it able to attract so many followers of varying ideologies and levels of education in such a short time? Well, it's one of the things that we uh, broach in the book because we're trying to ascertain how did a conspiracy theory that is you know, so fantastical go viral? And so while that's probably accurate in terms of the number of people who believe some element of the conspiracy theory in the United States, around 30, 33 million, we're looking at it also now as a global phenomenon. We've seen the emergence of QAnon, not just in Canada, but in the UK, in France, Germany, and even as far as Indonesia. So part of what we wanted to convey is you have a conspiracy theory meeting with social media platforms. And so as it moved from platform to platform, it widened the type of audience that it had, but also because it has so many different kinds of uh, different conspiracy theories that are enveloped in it. It's almost like a one-stop shop. It has something for everyone. So the malleability and the adaptability of this conspiracy theory is in part the explanation for why it's as popular as it is now. And should we be surprised because Pizzagate preceded it, but uh, it already attracted an awful lot of people. And a recent poll found that 15% of Americans believe there is a cabal of satanic, cannibalistic pedophiles who run a global child sex trafficking ring and conspired against Donald Trump during his term in office. Uh, all, all the villains being Democrats and, as far as I can tell, no Republicans. Yes. So um, as we look at the numbers of people who engage with QAnon content over time, we see that there was some growth of the QAnon contingent, so to speak, since its inception in 2016, some slow um, incline. And then once the COVID global pandemic started, and especially with the lockdowns, there is an exponential growth. And so it was a constellation of a number of things, just a perfect storm of circumstances coming together. You had a large number of people who were um, being isolated and feeling lonely. And we know from psychology research that anybody when they're feeling isolated and lonely are more likely to embrace conspiracy theories. And the, the virus itself was so scary and we had so little control over it or the measures that the government took 
Um, and again, we know that people who are fearful, who are feeling out of control, uh, feeling anxious, are more likely to, to, to tend toward conspiratorial mindset. Um, and add to that the fact that people had to communicate with the world through their computers, through the social media, which very often had algorithms that very quickly brought them from quite normal inquiries into the presidential candidate Trump, for example, or into the dangers of the virus to the kind of content that QAnon is famous for. So maybe, you know, they would in three or four clicks, they would get to stories that told them that Trump was, you know, the savior who was going to get rid of the cabal that is running the U.S. media and government or that uh, COVID was designed in a lab by a group of um, billionaires who want to take advantage of the lockdowns to enrich themselves. So it was, like I said, a, a perfect storm that brought a lot of people to these dark places on the web where some of them were taken advantage of by, by those, you know, using them for their own political or monetary gain. Along those lines, you say you consider QAnon to be like a sticky ball rolling down a hill. It picks up other conspiracies and their supporters along the way, growing ever larger over time. But uh, don't believers cherry pick ideas, the ones that uh, they that suit their needs? Absolutely. What you're going to have is, and especially as QAnon moved beyond the borders of the United States and Canada and started uh, metastasizing globally, what it did was it, it connected, let's say, in the UK, for, with Brexit and in France with the yellow jackets and in Germany, it was anti-refugee and anti-foreigner, anti-Muslim. And so as it moves, it changes. And so it's not so much that uh, individuals are cherry picking, but they're, they're coming into QAnon from a variety of pathways and that the primary belief about a, an elite cabal of blood drinking pedophiles it's not just Democrats, because when they're identifying the cabals, they talk about the Vatican, they talk about the Bush family, they've talked about the Windsor family in the UK, the royal family, as well as the royal family in Holland, which kind of, I didn't even know about the royal family in Holland, but they have identified different enemies. And so what happens is because it's almost for me like throwing you know pasta against the wall, something at some point is going to resonate and stick. And so... It's, it's not so much that individuals are cherry picking the message, but they may only be picking up elements of certain messages that resonate. So, for example, Lenka Peron, who is a well-known individual who left QAnon and she's done a number of interviews, she says she never saw anything anti-Semitic. But it would be impossible to be looking at anything QAnon and not pick up the anti-Semitism if you know what you're looking for. So I think it's not so much cherry picking, but it's the resonance at the individual level and their ability to identify it and link it because someone else would say to me, I don't get it, what's the pizza? Ah, pizza is the code for pedophile. Oh, that's why they're talking about pizza. So you have to know a little bit to see how it's gonna resonate. And, and along those lines, you, you cite a video in which a voice announces, quote, eight million children are missing. And then the video claims that the children are being bred for their blood and their body parts. Uh, now, most ra rational people would dismiss this, but doesn't that have its roots in anti-Semitic blood libel? It absolutely does. And it's one of the things in the book that uh, Sophia and I explored in great detail because it's historic anti-Semitism from the church. 
in which this idea that um, Jews were using unbaptized babies' blood for Passover matzah, as well as there had been a long uh, history of what they call blood libels uh, throughout Europe and even in Syria and even, believe it or not, in the United States. So they've, we've seen these blood libels before. Uh, we've also seen this idea of uh, some malevolent force that is controlling things, the puppet master that's pulling the strings. And these are all very common tropes that have been used for hundreds of years. And George Soros now is uh, the, the, the name that's most often cited. Yeah, Soros is the the villain that seems to be. I'm sorry. Because he's rich and Jewish. Yeah, and, and a because, liberal. And because he, for some reason, he is a very convenient target for people who want to, um, you know, direct their hate um, against those in power who have, you know, ruined the world that they grew up with or wanted to live in. Um, and, um, and so Soros is a convenient target because he hasn't really done anything political. You can't really, um, you can pin anything on him and he doesn't argue back. So. You say that although QAnon is often viewed as a group associated with conspiracy, terrorism, and radical action, uh, such things like the, the January 6th Capitol insurrection, radical extremism and terror may not be the real concern from this group? Well, I'm, I'm going to say something and then I really want Sophia to kick in afterwards. But I think that one of the reasons we wrote this book was because you had people like Elizabeth Newman on CNN, who's formerly DHS, saying that QAnon is the next ISIS. And if we have 30 million potential ISIS, we're screwed and we're in really yeah. big trouble. So I don't think it's that. And in fact, Sophia's research has shown that the vast majority of people who are QAnon are not, you know, the future ISIS, the future Manchurian candidate. And so that's where I think a little bit of nuance was necessary. There have been crimes and uh, FBI Director Ray has pointed to QAnon as having potential terrorist um, inclinations, in part because during the time that he said that, there had been a threat against the Hoover Dam. But now the concern is that people who are in QAnon will be so disappointed by the fact that all of these um, prophecies have not come true, that they might turn to violence. And this is where I'm a little bit more careful than what we're seeing on TV and, and various uh, uh, research institutes and, and groups that have produced research along those lines, making that argument that if you are a KKK in QAnon or an Oath Keeper or a 3 percenter in QAnon, the danger is coming probably from the KKK, Oath Keeper and 3 percenter part of your identity. The QAnon, like many incels, the involuntary celibates, are more likely dangerous to themselves more than they are to others. And so, you know, we, we wanted to put things within uh, a frame of reference, but also tamp down some of the uh, excitement about the new ISIS, because we, we don't think this is the next ISIS. Although but it a is- fair, But wait, but a fair number of the people who uh, invaded the Capitol building were wearing shirts or carrying flags with cues on them. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And just very briefly before uh, Sophia jumps in, when we look at the people who were arrested, there were a number of people who were QAnon, but there were also a number of people that were these other groups. And I think the QAnons are easy to pick out of the crowd, like where's Waldo, because they have a giant Q, whereas the other ones that are not wearing Q may or may not have been also QAnon believers. Sophia, you, you can say it better than I can. Um, yeah, I think there is a little bit of the availability heuristic because QAnon are, as, as Mia suggested, are not only so visible in the crowd, but also they're so um, colorful as, as a story to tell that our mind kind of sticks to that rather than some anonymous looking guy in, in camouflage who is actually there with zip ties and planning to kidnap law, um, lawmakers mm -hmm. and, and, and God knows what else. Um, and in fact, there is only uh, maybe 30 plus people who were associated with QAnon and they participated in the January 6th storming of Capitol Hill. Um, it, it's a tiny number against the background of the total number of believers, believers which numbers in tens of millions. Um, and in general, if we take this huge number of people, you know, 30 plus million Americans who believe in QAnon, how many of them were ever involved, even outside of January 6th, in any kind of radical action? To date, it's about like fewer than 70. So we're looking at a tiny fraction of 1%. And when we're trying to direct our efforts as, um, you know, security or research uh, toward potential threats, this threat is, is negligible. Like I said, it's a very vibrant threat and, and we human beings, we like to have easily identifiable villains and preferably with an ideology where they explain why they're doing what they're doing. And, and QAnon serves a good function for that, but there are much bigger threats on our horizon. And I think uh, in terms of QAnon, what we've observed in our research and other people have corroborated in theirs is that it is a much, um, a much bigger problem for mental health professionals mm -hmm. than it is for security professionals. Well, my guests on today's Leonard Lopit at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org are Sophia Muskulenko and Mia Bloom their new book, Pastels and Pedophiles, Inside the Mind of QAnon. But uh, Inside the Mind gets kind of scary. Don't they also believe that the Earth is flat, that the cabal comprises members of a reptilian alien race disguised as human, that the, uh, the well, you mentioned the coronavirus is a biological weapon used to gain control over the world population. They mistrust corporations, government, the media. They believe that Bill Gates is trying to use coronavirus vaccinations to implant microchips into people. Um, how could rational people, even emotionally disturbed, go along with some of those ideas? I mean, we, we know from some of the work um, that uh, Professor Ariely has done at Duke University. He's sort of the premier, um, I think he's a social economist, Dan Ariely, and he talks about why people lie. And he says that people don't start off with the big lie. You start off with the little tiny white lie and sort of it builds and builds. Most people who started in QAnon did not start in at the deep end. I mean, you might've had people who were rabidly anti-Semitic 
who jumped in with both feet and said, oh, yes, absolutely. The Jews are trying to control the world and drinking blood and adrenochrome and so on. But most of the people who start down that path actually started from a place of altruism, that they thought that they were doing the right thing in trying to help the children, because we know what is true. There is a problem with child trafficking and the trial trafficking data is horrific and things are not being done enough in the global South to protect children from domestic labor, from child marriage, from sex trafficking and the like. So there is this tiny grain of truth that the normal rational person is going to start with, and then they start pulling you in further and further. So it's a slippery slide. You know, it's not, it's not like you start from point one with the whole story, but it's a slow sort of um, becoming used to these ideas, but also you're in an echo chamber. And so you're not getting any disconfirming information or evidence. You're watching OAN, or they're even saying, don't watch the news, get your news only from us. And so at a certain point, when you're told, don't trust the mainstream media and anything you hear that undermines QAnon, they are part of the cabal, then that's where people start becoming more and more uh, hardcore believers. But not every QAnon person believes in lizard people or that the earth is flat or in chemtrails and contrails, but you do have this ability with QAnon, unlike anything we've seen before, to embrace a variety of different theories like the sticky ball, and then you know have something for everyone. And you say that the hashtag save the children has played a major role in enlisting followers. That's where many people begin? Well, absolutely. And this is uh, this is a little bit of a preview of some new research that we're releasing. Uh, we made reference to it about the fact that there was this Save the Children, and there is a charity, Save the Children, and I've been a, a donor to Save the Children for about 10 years. And we noticed something very unusual. So if you donate to any charity, you get a lot of mail from them asking for more money. So, you know, I had a lot of these requests in their magazines and in their flyers. And in all the flyers and requests and magazines, the kids are from the Middle East, Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia. And in the Save the Children campaign, all the children that we saw were blonde, bruised, and bound. And wait a second, those are not the children that are trafficked. And so QAnon was using a trope about the danger to white children, our children, not the actual children who are being trafficked and certainly not the children who are actually being helped by Save the Children, the real charity. How did celebrities like Tom Hanks and Oprah Winfrey come to be seen as agents of a movement meant to destroy the constitution and enslave those who don't share their liberal views? Well, first of all, you've mentioned two uh, major Democratic Party donors and both Tom Hanks and, and Oprah are very well known. They've, they've added in Ellen. Um, there's, there's a whole, uh, uh, Chrissy Teigen, who's also mm. really, you know, big, bad, cue monster. What it is, is it's this idea that Hollywood is, is involved in trafficking and amplifies the pedophilia. They call Hollywood pedowood. And they're able to take a handful of instances in order to convince people that, yes, it's true. Look at Harvey Weinstein. Look at Woody Allen. 
Look at Bill Cosby. And so that you just need that tiny grain of truth. And then maybe people are more willing to believe that there's this giant cover up. Now, with Tom Hanks, we found that very surprising during the pandemic. It also came out because QAnon was spreading that uh, someone had destroyed his star on the Walk of Fame in, in, in Hollywood. Um, there is an image of him at a children's uh, beauty pageant. And then that was it. And then, of course, QAnon was supercharged by the pandemic, and he was the very first celebrity to come out. He was in Australia. He came out and said that he was infected with COVID-19. And so all of the conspiracy theories about how the adrenochrome that previously was getting you high and keeping you young was now the, um, the solution to your COVID-19. This is how you were going to treat it gets wrapped up with this notion of celebrities who came out to talk about it, but also in particular Tom, uh, Tom Hanks, which is really strange because Tom Hanks has in every contract that he signs that he's never allowed to be the bad guy. So the fact that Tom Hanks is the bad guy is really mind blowing. <laughs> Can you explain the adrenochrome aspect of uh, the, the conspiracy they are discussing? What is adrenochrome? Mia? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I, I didn't want to. I didn't want to Bogart. Um, so adrenochrome is adrenalized um, adrenaline. Uh, it, that it actually is a real thing. So it's what is in your EpiPen. So there is an actual chemical compound. Now, does it keep you young? No. Uh, does it make you high? No. <laughs> and is it something that you need to torture children for? Absolutely not. It is something that is fairly mundane. But what had happened was adrenochrome was mentioned in a number of Hollywood films and in, um, and in books that were turned into films as having some sort of narcotic um, effect. And so, so many of the folklore that Sophia and I explored are actually ripped from the pages of, of Hollywood plot lines. And so what was so ironic is that a group that calls Hollywood Pettywood and says Hollywood is evil, they've plagiarized a lot of Hollywood plots. And including the their slogan, where does, where we go one, we go all, that comes from a 1966 movie called White Squall, doesn't it? 96, yes, absolutely. Oh, so uh, I'll give you, I'll, I'll tell you the, the genesis of this because it's such a funny story. I would have a hard time convincing someone who believed in QAnon that adrenochrome doesn't exist and keeps you young and, and, and makes you high. And, and the joke that I was making is, you know, I'm old, but I look young. So maybe I'm on the adrenochrome. But at some point, one of their influencers talked about the where we go, one we go all comes from a bell that's inscribed with this on John F. Kennedy's sailboat. And it just so happens that I knew that the sailboat is parked in front of UMass Boston and a colleague of ours went to the sailboat. There's no bell. But the Kennedy Library is also at UMass Boston. And so we asked the archivist. No, there's actually two. There's two sailboats. There is uh, the Vitura, which is the one that's parked outside UMass Boston. And then there's the Honeyfits. The Honeyfits was the royal yacht or the presidential yacht. There's no bell on either of them. And so I actually asked uh, Douglas Brinkley as a favor because he is the Kennedy historian for the family. He called the family, was the bell stolen? Do we need Nicolas Cage to find the bell? There was never a bell. So we did a reverse image search because they had a screenshot of the bell. And that's how we found that it was part of White Squall 1996 movie. 
And again, with Jeff Bridges, most of the movies that they stole plot lines from were movies that were not very well known. Because if I stole something from Back to the Future or Star Trek, Mm -hmm. there'd be a lot of people who could recognize it. But I don't know anybody who ever watched or saw White Squall. Mia, can you explain the talk about the storm and the Great Awakening? Well, this is all part of, you know, um, when you try to understand how QAnon appeals to Christians, in particular to evangelical Christians, this idea about awakening, this idea about an ultimate battle between good and evil, that's the thing that's going to resonate with people, with, with Christians who see the world and believe that, you know, Satan is operating in this world, on this, you know, on this planet that Satan is um, luring people in and doing all these horrible things. So, so the storm is the ultimate, you know, the battle of good against evil that is imminent. And of course it didn't end up happening on January 6th and it didn't end up happening on January 20th when Joe Biden was sworn in. But this awakening is one of the ways that Sophia explains psychologically why conspiracy theories and QAnon in particular by following the Q drops was so satisfying. Sophia, could you help me with this? Yeah, well, and Sophia, I, I want to join in on this as well. You've written that as a social psychologist, you normally study terrorists, but in researching this book, you notice that QAnon followers are different from the radicals you usually study. Yeah, that's and, right. And- um, so the main difference I already, uh, as, as I suggested, um, in is in that we're used to seeing very low rates of psychopathology among terrorists. And if you think about it, being a terrorist is is not easy. You have to maintain secrecy, you have to be reliable, you have to carry out these complex tasks, whether it's building a bomb or evading surveillance. Um, And so there is some sort of a natural selection that when you look at terrorists and compare them with general population, terrorists are actually less likely to suffer from psychopathology. Whereas data that we have so far on QAnon suggests that they are overwhelmingly more likely than an average person to be afflicted with psychopathology um, at the rate of about three and a half times as frequently as an average person. Um, so that was that was one major difference. Another major difference was that typically in a radical group, in a terrorist group, ideology is quite streamlined. And it's going from top down. And in order to belong, in order to be a validated member of the group, you have to embrace it wholesale. You can't pick and choose. Um, Whereas QAnon is kind of a horizontally organized group where every man and woman is for themselves. And somebody may believe in lizard people and flat earth but not care one bit about the, you know, these complex schemes about the cabal and, and the world government. Um, and somebody else can kind of sneer at the lizard people beliefs while they will, you know, spend hours talking about these connections that they feel are influencing our politics and banking system and journalism and so on. And, the way that QAnon um, space was was created and intended online was such that it brought people in and it kept them in. So it was designed kind of like a computer game in order to keep the person engaged and clicking. And the tasks that QAnon 
posed in front of the, you know, these newcomers um, were like puzzles. They had to figure out puzzles from these cue drops. And the reward was that they would figure out this top secret thing about the world order, which of course gave them a sense of importance and intellectual superiority. They knew something that nobody else knows about this really important thing. And the effort that they put into figuring it out and the social interactions that they had with other people made them kind of fall down this rabbit hole and believe things that maybe they wouldn't have believed. It's, it's kind of a cognitive dissonance paradigm where you exert effort and then you, you feel like you need to justify it. So you can't just say, okay, I, I spent hours online, didn't sleep last night, didn't feed my kids breakfast. And all I got was a picture with a phrase where we go one, we go all. No, you have to say to yourself, listen, I got this huge piece of the puzzle. This was on John F. Kennedy's sailboat. John F. Kennedy's family must be part of the cabal. They must be running the world. And so now I am privy to this very important information. I and want to return one, to this. I to, sorry, okay, I want to finish you. I have to go to a break in just a moment, but do your follow-up, please. And we'll return yeah. to this anyway. It's very quick. It's the, the, and this is again, one of the things about conspiracy theories. If someone gets hit by a bus crossing the street, the idea that bad things happen to good people is terrifying. Whereas if someone gets hit by a bus crossing the street, but the bus driver was aiming for them, for whatever reason, the conspiracy theory makes people feel better about an, an unknowable and dangerous world where like the virus is, you can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't identify it. And yet you feel better thinking, ah, but there's a plan. Someone's doing this on purpose. And for whatever reason, that seems less bad than, you know, a, a virus accidentally is moving through the planet. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Yeah, we all got a buddy who sort of turned the corner politically recently, don't we? Anyway, this is about my pal. Yeah, I got a QAnon friend, conspiracy theories that never end. He tells me all of Hollywood are pedos. He says the truth will wipe us clean. We'll find the friends of Jeff Epstein and string them up high by their tuxedos. Among the most offensive felons, Kimmel, Bono, oh, and Ellen, they're all locked up and arrested in their homes. Like Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. Well, and of course, Madonna's been killing kids to drink their adrenochrome. And I don't know what to believe. He said We're back with my guests, Mia sleep. Bloom and Sophia Moskalenko. They've written a book called Pastels and Pedophile. Inside the Mind of QAnon, published by uh, Redwood Press. Uh, getting, Sophia, in court yes. records of QAnon followers who were arrested in the wake of the Capitol insurrection, didn't 68% report that they had received mental health diagnoses for conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, bipolar disorder, yes. paranoid schizophrenia, Munchausen syndrome by proxy? Yeah, it's a staggering number. 68% of QAnon supporters who were present at the January 6th um, storming of Capitol Hill had prior diagnoses. And you have to understand that diagnoses are 
underestimating prevalence of actual disease because some people don't have health insurance. Some people will never seek evaluation because of stigma. Um, so the actual prevalence is likely higher. And if you compare these 68% among QAnon to the general population, the rate of mental health diagnosis in Americans is about 20%. So QAnon supporters, at least the ones who were present at, at the January 6th insurrection, were afflicted at a three and a half times rate of that among average American adults. What's Munchausen syndrome by proxy? It's a disorder where a person will actively harm um, their loved one, usually a child, um, in order to seek attention and sympathy for themselves. Um, so typically it would be a mother and the child would be going for repeated procedure for a variety of symptoms that either she would make up or she would create by, for example, giving the child poison. Um, and and it's, it's a very disturbing thing and it's not very common. And yeah, one of the QAnon supporters um, had it. Uh, aren't uh, people who exhibit suspicious and paranoid behavior and who are manipulative, irresponsible, low on empathy, more likely to believe in conspiracy theories? Yes, indeed. There is a, a personality... Um, uh, triad, quad, I don't know how many of those um, people with a schizotypy personality. So who are suspicious, um, who are loners, who are um, kind of neurotic, they are more likely to believe in, in conspiracy theories. But like I said, even people who are perfectly mentally healthy, can be driven to conspiratorial mindsets if they're made to feel anxious, if they're made to feel fearful or lonely or isolated. But among the QAnon insurrectionists with criminal records, 44% had experienced a serious psychological trauma that preceded their radicalization, usually a form of sexual abuse, I understand. Yes, or or um, their in, in case of women who were at the January sixth insurrection, um, most common was that their children were either physically or sexually abused by usually their partner. Boy, so is one way of combating the appeal of QAnon to offer uh, these people psychological counseling? I mean, it's, it's, it's no laughing matter. We are on the whole, we have data, not just for QAnon, but for Americans in general. And I think the whole world, this last year was not the easiest year to survive. And the rates of self-reported anxiety and depression among Americans quadrupled over the course of quarantine, climbing from about 10% to about 40%. So we would all do really well with some mental health counseling. And in terms of QAnon, I think it's critical that we address mental health problems um, because a large number of these people are crying out for help. They are uh, solving problems um, in their lives that QAnon helps with, such as their isolation, their distrust to the government and to the 
the kind of um, American authority and institutions in general. Um, and QAnon was conveniently there for them. Um, and if we want them to turn toward alternative ways of dealing with these discomforts, then we have to address the psychic pain that they're experiencing. Mia, uh, Sophia mentioned uh, women in this movement. Isn't a large segment of QAnon's membership women? Uh, Absolutely. Identifying I mean, as members of Pastel QAnon, which of course is uh, a, an explanation for the title of your book, Pastels and Pedophiles. Yes, the thing that they're really focused on. Um, what we what we were originally planning to do was we were going to focus only on women, but then we you know wanted to widen the lens. But what we were able to see is right from the get go, women are the unsung heroes of QAnon because although, as you mentioned, Jake Chansley with the horns and the painted face and the bare chest, or our other individuals who were arrested at the Capitol with the giant Q on their shirts, those were men. But the first person to get killed, Ashley Babbitt, was a woman, and that you know, and Roy, Roseanne Boylan, who was another woman killed that day, she was trampled to death. And we, we really don't understand and appreciate how central women are to any kind of movement. Because if you get the women, you're going to get the husbands, and you're definitely getting the kids. But women were involved in uh, fundraising for the January 6th insurrection. We have uh, women like Liz Crokin, who was once upon a time an actual reporter and then became a conspiracy theorist, who's the one that convinced Marjorie Taylor Greene. So when you look at the QAnon women in Congress, it's two women. When you're looking at uh, QAnon in terms of uh, the number of crimes committed between 2018 and 2020, half of those crimes perpetrated were by women but we don't talk about it. So this is why it was really important to understand the central nature of women's roles. Because again, the women are the anchor and the ability to, especially when QAnon moved to Facebook and Instagram, which are Instagram more so, is a very feminine space. And that's where you started not just getting right-wing women who love Trump, but you started getting the, the vegans and the QA moms and women who practice yoga. And these are people who we ordinarily associated with the left and not the right. But of course, it was the women that were being pulled in from the entire political spectrum to believe that they had to become keyboard warriors to save the children. And it resonates in particular with women. Almost it activates an, a maternal instinct, if you will, that how can we ignore this thing happening to children? If we ignore it, we're just as bad as the people who are hurting the children. Was there a membership in QAnon part of the appeal to voters for Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert? In the Republicans in general, you know, when, when Marjorie Taylor Greene first won the primary in the summer of 2020, uh, leader McCarthy, uh, Kevin McCarthy came out against her. And in fact, Steve Scalise tried to fund her, the, the person who was running against her. Once she won, however, they had to embrace it. And when you look at the 97 primary candidates, then um, the 24 of whom went on to the November election, 22 of 24 of those were Republicans. So the Republican Party basically considers QAnon as useful idiots. 
They're not going to disavow QAnon, even though I would say most of the Republican leadership does not think that there's a blood drinking cabal, which includes the Bush family. Um, but they are they are loath to disavow it because you know they're power seeking and they they want to turn over the Congress and Senate in 2022, and they need the Q vote. They also, I assume, don't believe that there are Jewish space lasers that are causing fires in California. But uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene Apparently, made yes. that claim, and she got elected. Well, not, not only did she get elected, but um, Aronofsky, uh, who's um, a, there's a son of a rabbinical judge, two sons, one of whom was who uh, entered and occupied the Capitol. It was well famous. So Aaron uh, occupied the Capitol. His brother gave Marjorie Taylor Greene a tour in Brooklyn, New York of a of a bakery and of a synagogue and a Jewish school. And, you know, again, the fact is she was saying that asking people to wear a mask is like the Germans making Jews wear a yellow star. She had to then apologize for it. I mean, she really is a true believer and they keep trying to tweak her so that she doesn't embarrass them, especially with important Republican Jewish donors. But she is absolutely a liability because she always circles back to the most insane uh, tropes in QAnon that are very anti-Semitic. And actually, she doesn't even get it right. She didn't say yellow star. She said gold star. <laughs> gold stars usually mean something quite different. Well, Trump, tr Trump hasn't been very good to gold star families either, but that's a whole other show. My guests on today's Leonard Lopez at large are uh, Mia Bloom and Sophia Muscolenko, and uh, they've collaborated on a book called Pastels and Pedophiles Inside the QAnon Mind. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Um, Alex Jones claimed to be in personal contact with Q. Uh, do you think there really is a, an individual Q clearance patriot? One of, the, one of the arguments we made in the book um, to save people the time from watching six hours of Vice documentaries and six hours of HBO documentaries about who, who was Q was um, to open the possibility that there were different individuals posting a queue at different times. Because when you look at capitalization or grammar or word usage, you do see changes over time. One of the things that became very clear by 2019, 2020, is that most people who believe in QAnon really don't care who Q is. And a lot of, you know, a lot of money was spent and a lot of travel and business class flights to Asia to track down, you know, Ron Watkins and Jim Watkins. Um, at this point, in some ways, it almost seems like it's, it's, it's not even like the point anymore. It's besides the point, because even if you take Q as an individual of having high clearance out of the equation, you still now have all these people who believe that there is a cabal, or as Marjorie Taylor Greene calls them, a cable of blood drinking <laughs> Democrats in Hollywood and the royal families of Europe. Give her a gold star. With the gold star. <laughs> and, and so the, the problem, the problem is much deeper. The problem is the fact that QAnon is corrosive to democracies and the institutions. It's telling people who follow it, don't trust the news, don't trust the vote, don't trust the government, but it's also at an individual level, bad for the person's mental health. I'm on these platforms. 
I'm seeing what they see. And it's some horrible, horrible stuff. And it is intended to shock you and to put you in a tizzy that you have to do something. So it's almost in many ways a proselytizing uh, movement. But it's, it's really, it's very now, it's very complex. And so to try to take someone on, you know, head on, you're wrong, this is crazy. Sophia and I argue this is the wrong approach. It's one of the reasons why, although we definitely detected the racist biases, these underlying biases in QAnon, yeah. we Are the white supremacists as well, generally? Well, there's a lot of racism in QAnon, but they are trying to bring in now people of color and appeal to people in Latin America and especially to appeal to um, Americans of color because there is this connection between your vote and your belief in QAnon. We wanted to talk about the underlying racist biases, but it wasn't going to be useful to say you're all a bunch of stupid racists. Because we're trying to get people out of QAnon. We want to differentiate between the QAnon influencers who have been making a fortune off of these QAnon, you know, rubes as they see them and exploiting them. We want to help the people who went into QAnon because they had, for good faith reasons, they wanted to help children or they wanted to finish your thought. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's just that, you know, it's, it's not that. Not that every single person in QAnon subscribes to the most racist, anti-Semitic ideology. They might, you know, have bits and pieces that they believe that there's an explanation for all these horrible things. And they needed that explanation. They wanted to help children. They want to do good. But it's not about them hating people of color or hating Jews. But how do they rationalize? I'm going to go through a a bit of a list of things that, that were predicted that didn't happen. Uh, there was a storm that was going to take place November 3rd, 2017, a storm that was going to take place on January 20th, 2021, the day of uh, Biden's inauguration. Uh, a major event involving the Department of Defense would take place on February 1st, 2018. Um, people targeted by the president would commit suicide en masse on February 10th, 2018. There would be a car bombing in London on February 16, 2018, um, the the Pope w- was going to be uh, arrested on felony charges. Pope Francis, uh, the uh, I can go on and on and on. A smoking gun video of Hillary Clinton would emerge in March 2018. Now, none of these things happen, and there are many more. Of course, they predicted that Trump would be inaugurated on January 20th, 20. 21, and then that he would be inaugurated on March 4th, 2021, as the 19th president, which was this weird cockamamie thing that he'd be the next president after Ulysses S. Grant. So how did they rationalize all of these things, not only not happening, but being totally beyond comprehension? Well, I think a failed prophecy has never stopped a religious movement from, you know, believing even more. In fact, I think most religious movements are founded around a prophecy and most prophecies are vague enough that you can say, okay, you know, Jesus is coming in our, like, you know, a lot of evangelicals will say Jesus is coming, his second coming is going to happen in our lifetimes. And then lifetimes and lifetimes later, they're still saying it. 
So, you know, some people will kind of see that as a failure and they will walk away away from QAnon, but the ones who stay become even more devoted because again, they have to justify their choice as being not irrational, but there's something bigger happening and you are just not understanding it. You're just not seeing the bigger picture and they are smarter because they do and they are more special because they do. So it works by filtering out the non-believers and and the weaklings and by making the remaining people even more entrenched in their beliefs. There's one other thing, Leonard, because the cue drops, because, you know, they're encouraged to do your own research. It's very easy for the individual to be like, oh, I just probably miscalculated the date. Or with March 4th, the QAnon forums who are the ones that first put out the idea of a March 4th, 2021 storm, uh, almost immediately sort of backpedaled because they realized if we have another failed prophecy, we're going to lose people. So then they started saying, no, it's a trap. You know, it's like, it's a trick by the deep state. They've infiltrated QAnon. They've put the March 4th date out there. And so a number of people who work on QAnon were interviewed. And Sophia and I, because we had finished the book and I was being interviewed by Anderson Cooper, I said, Anderson, nothing's going to happen on March 4th. They're telling now their followers it's a trap. So when you can't produce the crowd, there is an easy out to say, well, you know, I'm the one that figured it out and maybe I just miscalculated. Or they say, well, you really don't know what's going on because here's the reality. And they'll say something like um, President Trump has referred is being referred to as President Trump somewhere instead of former President Trump. Or they're saying, well, you know, we said he'd be reelected, but we didn't say when. Another another group of QAnon will say he's still president. That's not actually Joe Biden. That's President Trump wearing a Joe Biden face, like face off, you know, with with John Travolta, where the face is switched. So there are a lot of fantastical things to explain the fact that the prophecies never come true. But psychologically, we are starting to see doubters. And so what Sophia did was she broke the QAnon community into three different categories, sort of the level of Qness, that the people who leave and the people who are having doubt, those can be saved. But the people who are going to be the true believers and double and triple down, we might have to, you know, mitigate our expectations that we're going to be able to help everybody. Now, the both of you have uh, written quite a a number of books on your own. Uh, What is it was it like to co-author this book, to collaborate on this book? Well, I, I like to say that Mia set me up on a blind date with an idea and I fell in love <laughs> with it. Um, yeah, it was um, really, Mia was the the engine, you know, <laughs> behind this. And um, I'm, I'm very grateful for being able to work on this at a time when it's very pertinent. It, it's rare for, for researchers to be able to just kind of you know, dip into the movement that we're studying right, you know, in the here and now, because, you know, it's usually it's either long ago or far away. Um, with QAnon, it's very immediate. And in fact, we all probably know somebody who is in QAnon. And so I feel like the work we put in the book um, to give 
ideas and tips um, based on research um, on, on how to address people in your life who are either deep into the QAnon uh, rabbit hole or they're they're kind of QAnon curious, you know, they're exploring the idea, they're not quite ready to like fully subscribe, but they're thinking about it. Um, or maybe they have left the QAnon movement and are coming out of the scorched earth that is their life. Um, I, I feel like the work that we put in toward that end is really important because so many people are, are in need of answers. Well, I wouldn't I even mean, know how to access HN. Yeah, for me also, I catfish Sophia. I have to be honest. I have, a, I have, so Redwood Press is part of Stanford University Press. At Stanford University, I have my own imprint on terrorism and political violence. And I was going around for over a year, at, you know, identifying QAnon experts saying, you know, would you like to write a book? And either people ghosted me, they didn't respond, or there was, you know, a few meetings and nothing came of it. And the president of the press of Stanford University said, Mia, I bet at this point you could write a book. And I went, well, I could write a half a book. If I could have Sophia Moskalenko. And I very carefully, I, I set the trap and I put the bait and I reeled her in ever so gently. I got to leave it there, unfortunately. We've run out of time. Mia right. Bloom is the International Security Fellow at New America, professor of Georgia State University and a member of the Evidence-Based Cybersecurity Research Group. Sophia Moskalenko is a psychologist studying mass identity, intergroup conflict and conspiracy theories. They have co-authored Pastels and Pedophiles uh, Inside the Mind of QAnon, published by Redwood Press. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, eye-opening. Thank you so much for having us and I'm sorry why I went over. No, no, you didn't. It's my fault. I have to get out, unfortunately, because it, that brings us to the end of today's show. I'm running out of time. You can access all of our more than 500 previous shows at WBAI.org. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other places where podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you would like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content because WBAI depends 100% on listener donations. So if you tune in regularly to Let It Lobate at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to keep this historic station, the only one on New York radio dial that's entirely listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible charitable donation. To everyone who's already stepped up to support WBAI in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, thank you so much. And I hope you'll join us again for tomorrow's show when scientist Jonathan Balcom will discuss his new book, Superfly, The Unexpected Lives of the World's Most Successful Insects. We'll see you then. <laughs>